Bewegung. Wir fliegen die Strecke bei jeder Witterung. Wir warten nicht, wir starten auf immer This is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. And this week, like last week, we are participating right now in WNUR 89.3 FM, Chicago's Sound Experiments annual phonathon fundraiser, the one time every year where we ask for your support of our home station, WNUR, by going to WNUR.org slash donate. As an, as an organization, WNUR strives to provide a forum for underrepresented music and ideas by promoting musicians, musical genres, news, public affairs issues, and athletic events often overlooked by major media outlets. Moreover, WNUR aims to provide an inclusive space for people to learn and express themselves by exploring and promoting underrepresented content and in turn sharing that knowledge with others. If you go to WNUR.org slash donate right now, you can show your support at each of our donation levels. We would like to show our thanks with a special gift. Please refer to the descriptions under each tier when visiting WNUR.org slash donate, those being the tiers of contributor level, donor level, silver, gold, diamond, and platinum levels. Donate at the contributor level of $10 and get a WNUR sticker. For $25, you can be a donor level donor and get a WNUR t-shirt and sticker. You can donate at the silver level of $50 and receive a WNUR tote bag t-shirt and sticker. Then there's the gold level of $70, which gets you hand-picked limited edition vinyl records, a WNUR beanie, the tote bag, plus the t-shirt, and an NUR sticker. There's also the diamond level of $125, which gets you all of that, plus the WNUR hoodie. And finally, there's the platinum level, and with a donation of $250, you get hand-picked limited edition vinyl records, the WNUR hoodie, tote bag, beanie, t-shirt, and sticker, plus... Limited edition WNUR socks. Support completely commercial-free independent college radio now by visiting WNUR.org slash donate. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell for those incarcerated into the abyss that is the United States prison system. And education, while in detention, has often been seen as a step toward rehabilitation, an opportunity inmates may not have had in the outside world in order to find a life that is not dominated by crime and a way to avoid recidivism and a return to prison. However, the, that all changed with the Clinton administration's 1994 crime reform bill, which slashed funding to education programs in prisons. With Clinton's program for mass incarceration, opportunities for a better life after paying the so-called debt to society were disappearing, and with it, many would return to a life of crime, and eventually, increasing numbers would return to prison. But that changed yet again in 2015, when education programs in prisons would find new forms of funding and classes for the incarcerated returned. 
Yet with this return to education in prison, many of the same questions started being asked. Again, questions like, what is education like in prison? What do the prisoners learn and how do they learn it? How is it being taught? Our guest today has taught in prison and they can offer a keen insight to, into what it is like. Daniel Fernandez wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Classroom in the Cell, Who Benefits from Prison Education? And it's a question Daniel poses in light of new writing by a past guest on our show, Chris Hedges, who's been on several times. And he's got a, mo- a new book out called Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. But this is more than just, you know, uh, Daniel's writing is more than just a mere book review. Daniel uses Hedges' work to give us a new perspective, kind of as a launching off point into what education means for those held in prison. Daniel is not only a regular contributor to The Baffler, but he also edits at Inquest, a decarceral brainstorm, a new forum on how to end mass incarceration. You can find out more about Inquest at Inquest.org. Follow Inquest on Twitter at underscore Inquest underscore. Daniel is a PhD student in history at the University of Chicago, and he has written for The Nation, The New Republic, and The Los Angeles Review of Books. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Daniel Aaron 1007 that's Daniel A A R O N 1007 I am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing is Sebastian Vuper Sebastian when I mentioned in our group email that I was having some success with my recurring digestive issues by consuming fermented foods like uh, drinking kombucha and eating skier, which is uh, Scandinavian yogurt, a thicker, more creamy yogurt that almost tastes like sour cream. You mentioned uh, something called quark. What, Sebastian, what the hell is quark? Uh, quark is kind of a, I don't know, I would say it's a German staple food, um, sort of. It's somewhere in the middle between sour cream and uh, 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 like cottage cheese. Um, it's very rich in protein, so it has a lot of whey protein in it. So, like, if you do any kind of, like, bodybuilding or, you know, trying to, uh, be on a low-carb diet, that is, um, the food of choice for people in Germany. Oh, I see. Can, can you turn down the music just a tiny bit? Just yeah, tiny. I just, I, I yeah. don't know what's going on there. Yeah. Uh, so, uh... Anything else new by you other than introducing me to Quark, which I really want to try. I, now I just got to find out where I can get it. Uh, I mean, not not that much. Um, other than that, I talked to my dad yesterday again. My dad lives in Berlin. He is married to a Russian woman from Ukraine. And uh, in his old age, has been uh, taking up a lot of Russian propaganda from uh, Russian TV that they watch, apparently, which okay. is always kind of weird. Um, given that he uh, was born in 1940 and, um, you know, one of his first childhood memories is fleeing the Red Army. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of an odd thing. But also just an odd thing to think about that this man was born uh, during World War Two, and now, um, I mean, he's 80, 81 now, so... <sighs> It's, uh, you might die during World War Three, or <laughs> depending Jeez. on how you count it. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we got a phone call from relatives over the weekend telling us that, uh, what happened in, uh, Ottawa, uh, was horrible. It was the end of freedom, and that at any moment now they were going to be rounding up all of the leftists all over the world and putting them in prisons. And we asked why, and they said, oh, didn't you hear a woman was killed by the police in Ottawa? 
that story was not true whatsoever, and that's when we learned that our relatives were getting all of their information from Twitter, and that's never a very good thing. What's new by me is what's old by me, which is always my freaking guts, and what's new is a different prescription to address my chronic ailment because it became so painful that I've spent nearly all of last weekend in bed, and I nearly had to miss today's show, and then I had a whole issue with our new operating system and printing out the script, and uh, Yep, my life's a nightmare. But more important than my body breaking down and my life being a nightmare, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? What are you buying the cheapest version of these days? I'm going to say for your parents as well as for family and uh, for my family, what they are buying cheapest version of these days is propaganda. Seems like everybody's getting a really good deal on that lately. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that can be found at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff flags... Your non-Jewish privilege. Sebastian will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following a conversation with Daniel on education in prison. Again, the question from hell is, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? What are you buying the cheapest version of these days? We are looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell in 2022. If you would like to run the board as Alex and Richard do, as Sebastian is doing, as Dan Hill has begun to do, as Lindsay has begun to do this year, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. What better way to start your new year with a new gig running the board here on This Is Hell. If you would like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West of Avon in Chicago's Westridge neighbor- neighborhood with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Wednesday and our Patreon podcast on Thursdays at the same time. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And last week while we were off, we got an email from listener Bruce K. who writes, Hi, Chuck, this email is a long time coming, but I heard your shout-out for a board operator a few weeks ago. It stuck in my mind, and I'm finally reaching out. For 23 years pre-pandemic, I filled the music calendar at Martyrs. Heading up the talent buying promotion and production for those who are listening online around the world. Martyrs is a club here in Chicago that clearly has bands. I can't say I, I wasn't out ready to leave mid-2020, but the pandemic gave me a shove, says Brian. I'm a longtime fan of This Is Hell, long before Lumpin Radio, big fan of WLPN. Free time has allowed me to catch more of your shows over the past several months, and I'm always impressed with the depth and understanding you and your crew have covered with so many guests with important information to convey. I know my way around a soundboard. I have been on many stages as a musician and have sat behind a few boards, though not nearly as much as booking and playing on the stage. Anyway, perhaps you've already filled the spot, but if not, I'd love to talk with you more about it. 
Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for the email. And we would love to uh, speak with you despite you seeming very overqualified for the position. That said, you could be a dual threat for the show because of your ability to book bands. And we are hoping against hope that we can actually hold our This Is Hell anniversary party and art show This Is Art this summer on Saturday, July 23rd, which features not only... Uh, art an art show, but delicious food and a place to meet other listeners for the show, but live music, and it's all completely free. So yes, it would be great to have you on as one of our board ops, but we'd also truly appreciate your help in booking bands. We've already talked to former board op Egon Sheely, who about uh, helping us with bands, as he used to book uh, bands at the uh, Empty Bottle, and I'm betting the two of you could come up with a great lineup for this summer's party, a party we are becoming increasingly optimistic about actually happening. Yes, you too can email us or message us via Facebook or tweet at us, and we'll likely read whatever you have shared with us on air. We uh, got another email from Brianna, who has a guest suggestion, and we'll be getting to that following our conversation with Daniel. We'll we'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? What are you buying the cheapest version of these days? And remember, show your support for Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR, by going to wnur.org slash donate. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. For many, education in prison is equated with rehabilitation, or at least a step in a direction away from a life of crime. When funding for education in prisons was slashed by the Clinton 1994 crime bill as mass incarceration grew, an opportunity for prisoners to improve their lives was taken away. But with that education again being funded within the last several years, an opportunity to avoid recidivism seemed to be at hand. But how well has education fared as a form of rehabilitation, and does it have any shortcomings that may not have been considered before? Here to help us have a better understanding of education during incarceration, Daniel Fernandez wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Classroom and the Cell, Who Benefits from Prison Education? Welcome to This is Hell, Daniel. Thanks, Chuck. It's good to be here. It's great to have you on the show. This is fantastic writing. And like I was saying, while your article is a review of a past guest on our show, Chris Hedges' new book, Our Class, Trauma, and Transformation in an American Prison. This is about a lot more than just Chris's book, and that's why we wanted to have you on the show. We're not, I just don't want to discuss a book that maybe our listeners haven't read already, but at the same time, there's so much insight that you give to his perspective. You write, several years ago, I became a college tutor at a maximum security prison. This decision was not prompted by a single moment of moral awakening, and while U.S. media had been awash in horrific depictions of mass incarcerations, I cannot remember a particular book or documentary that spurred me to act. Instead, I was possessed Possessed by the idea that this was a good thing to do, even if that conviction was accompanied by a powerful suspicion that I might be attaching myself to an icky and absurd enterprise, as H.L. Mencken once noted, do-gooders tend to be less interested in serving than in exercising power. Now, I've met people who, under that guise of serving, are actually seeking to exercise power. In one conversation a long time ago, someone who was studying to be a psychologist told me that the reason they were doing so was that they believed they could fix people. How, how thin is that line between serving people and exercising power? How difficult is it to make certain you are serving and not exercising power? <laughs> well, I think that at some level, the 
boundary between those two things is so thin that any person who's interested in serving or or in making a difference is always at risk perhaps of running into a more authoritarian for lack of a better word impulse um and i'd like to think that being <laughs> cognizant of it um, and of sort of the power that teachers hold over pupils or that, you know, a psychiatrist holds over their patient, um, uh, that because those power dynamics are somewhat implicit and, and I think well understood that there are ways to sort of mitigate against it. Um, when I was teaching um, in the classroom, I really tried to be thoughtful about how much of my relationship with these students was kind of a give and take um, and that there was both a lot that I could teach them and a lot that I, I could learn from them and so I think that is perhaps one way that I tried to you know attenuate against that possibility for for something um, you know less good-natured but I think as I explain hopefully in the essay that uh, the feeling of, of ambivalence didn't really go away as I continued to spend more time teaching, and, and in many respects, it, it's still with me um, today, I guess. So what... it, it's just, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, 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 go ahead. I want you to continue. I, I, you know, I, I was just going to say that I think that my my ambivalence, just to be clear, wasn't so much about being in the classroom, which I love and miss, you know, deeply. Um, and I'm really grateful for for what prison education has done to me. Like as an instructor, it's deepened my commitment to justice. It's made me more energized to end, you know, our incredibly cruel prison regime. And it showed me in a really, you know, profound way how much is wasted by incarceration, just how ruinous it is to the, to the human spirit. But at the same time, I think looking back on it, I'm at times, um, you know, disturbed by how many benefits as, as a student when I was working in this program, I reaped from it, you know, social benefits that came with it. You know, there were jobs that I probably wouldn't have gotten were it not for this line on my resume. There are people who would not have taken my ideas seriously if they wouldn't have known this about me. And so I don't think it's an accident that when you look at the sort of biographies of many young, high-achieving people today, you know, the sort of people winning fancy scholarships or in graduate school working on issues or law schools related to, you know, criminal justice reform, that, that this is a feature on, on their resumes um, because it resonates with people. Um, and I, I do think there's, there's really deep value in people working with incarcerated people and learning from them. Um, but at the same time, I think I've reaped these benefits. You know, the men who I um, were teaching, they're all still in cages. They're not yet free. And I find myself worried about what, you know, it's going to be like when they get to the end of these programs and still might not be free. You know, that, that there's nothing inherently emancipatory about um, education in prisons, I think. Do you think, as an educator, do you think that then that you benefited more from the experience of teaching those who are incarcerated than the incarcerated actually benefited from getting that education? 
I am not sure I would I would go that far. And it's and it's honestly, Chuck, not something I'm sure I can totally evaluate because um, you know, one of the things that I consistently heard while I was teaching, and one of the things that both currently and formerly incarcerated people consistently sort of say in public when they have the opportunity to speak is that these programs are, you know, immensely valuable. They create spaces for, for learning and for growth and, and for dignity and grace within institutions that work just relentlessly to grind people down. Um, and I don't think that it's possible to, to understate how important that can be and how generative the classroom can be as a space. I think what I maybe wanted in, in writing this article to think about more and to encourage others to think about more is whether or not prison education is a durable solution to ending mass incarceration. In other words, how does it move us toward you know, a world without prisons or toward a world in which we are treating everyone with, you know, an equal share of, of dignity and, and grace. So how successful is higher education in prison at reducing recidivism? Because I think that is its main goal. Or is do you think uh, education in prison has a bigger goal than just that? I think that the question of goals depends a good deal on who you uh, ask. Um, I think for um, people working in prison administration and for lawmakers, people who are thinking about sort of the political economy of punishment, um, the value of education is ideally that it keeps people out of prison once they've earned you know a bachelor's degree and there's really powerful evidence that indeed you know graduating from one of these programs whether it's a two-year program or a four-year program or a master's program in a very small number of cases meaningfully reduces the odds that um, you know a person will be sent back to prison. Now, th there are some important kind of contextual factors to keep in mind with those optimistic data points. Um, first, there's some kind of selection bias because not everyone who is incarcerated is necessarily in a position where they can participate in one of these programs. They may not have a GED. They may not be ready for college-level academic work. Um, they may be under administrative detention, and so they can't get out and you know often enough to go to class um, and so because of that I think that it's important for advocates and for people who are interested in ending mass incarceration to play up those those positive statistics because I think that this kind of programming can be really valuable but I don't necessarily think that it is going to get us to a place where we're really meaningfully reducing the, the footprint that prisons have. Um, you know, I, in some ways I see it is kind of fitting in with, with some of the other popular reforms that tend to dominate the, the discourse that um, we have about kind of mass incarceration. We talk a lot about, you know, drug resentencing or carve-outs for nonviolent offenders. And these are indisputably good things because they result in less suffering 
and less people in prison. But I don't necessarily think that they are going to create justice at, at the necessary scale. That, that is to say that I'm not convinced that, that the practical effects of getting 30 or 40 or even 100 people in prison education programs in facilities that have thousands of people, how much in the long term that's going to move us toward you know, a, a world without prisons or toward a world with at least much fewer prisons than we have today. You mentioned uh, NJ Step, a program that the journalist Chris Hedges has taught in for several years. A former foreign, foreign correspondent at the New York Times, Hedges has spent much of his uh, century, much of this century, sorry, reporting domestically from the front lines of an ailing and increasing Anomic, increasingly anomic America. His latest book uses these teaching experiences as a window into our country's vast penal system, which he once described as exemplifying, quote, the perfect world of the corporate state and what they want to do to the rest of us. If this is the perfect world of the corporate state during your time teaching prisoners, what have you determined the corporate state wants to do to the rest of us? <laughs> um well, I'm not necessarily sure that we we live in um, this sort of perfect world of the corporate state, um, and I I can't really guess at what the you know Jeff Bezos's or Elon Musk's of the world would like to do with us, other than you know uh, have us obey and and work in their warehouses or factories and you know. Uh, so, but but I, I guess maybe um, what I would say, and I think what what Chris is trying to to point out here, is that um, incarceration can't be viewed as kind of a separate entity from the sort of. Um, economic and political order that we find ourselves in. Um, it, it was kind of a truism among 20th century um, people to, to remark that sort of prisons were, were the mark of um, civilization within a society. Um, and this quote is often misattributed to Dostoevsky, who didn't say any such thing. Um, but, but the point is that it was very much an, an ideological feature of how people thought about punishment. And it's the case now that when you talk to people about the prison in America, they want to sort of suggest that mass incarceration is, is in some way anomalous with the world that we live in. In other words, that, um, that, that in some ways it's not, uh, um, that, that we are a very civilized country and that this is just, um, you know, some misbalancing of, of the equation. And I, I think for any number of reasons, we can kind of all recognize how, um, farcical and at, and at odds that kind of sentiment is with, with the world we live in. You write that if it seems a bit too easy to blame corporations for the carceral state, it's true that our justice system does little to prepare anyone for life on the outside. But how much of that lack of preparation for life on the outside is driven by the bottom line and earning profits. And if it's not only profit-seeking, what else contributes to that lack of preparation for inmates post-prison? Mm. Well, um, <laughs> I think that <laughs> this is this is like a, a rather difficult question, I think, for me to 
do justice to, but I'll give it my best shot. There you go. <laughs> I, I, um, I think that there is uh, that with deindustrialization and with um, changes in demography and changes in economic opportunity that have happened over the last 40 years, um, there have been really um, enormous swaths of this country that have been left behind. And, you know, a generation of, of scholars and abolitionists, um, Mike Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis, um, have really talked about this surplus population as being the quote-unquote problem that prisons solve. And so we have all of these people who have been locked out of the job market, who we've denied um, for reasons of, of social segregation and lack of educational opportunity, um, the chance to participate in sort of the um, American economy and sort of the American way of life. And, and prisons basically become the places where, where we disappear these people to, that they are um, what we do with the quote unquote surplus population left over um, after deindustrialization. And, and to me, this is um, a, a compelling theory. I think, um, in terms of, of the educational component of it, I, I sometimes wonder if we're going to be talking 10 years from now not about a school-to-prison pipeline, but a school-to-prison education pipeline, where rather than really serving people's immediate needs while they are free, um, or at least not in prison, that all of these social services are going to come to kind of colonize the penitentiary in a way. Instead of dealing with, with the sort of root causes of poverty or racism or white supremacy um, in the sort of social world that, that those of us in the free world occupy, we're, we're just going to continue to try and make prisons the vehicles for addressing really systemic problems, which, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, they're not capable of doing. And so I think at a, at a fundamental level, one of the problems with rehabilitation is that it fits into this very individualized um, conception of, of justice. And, and so blameworthiness and responsibility become only something for individuals to be kind of the vectors for um, rather than um, the kind of political order that we find ourselves living in. And, and so I think in as much as the corporate state is, is capable of convincing everyone that um, indeed this is sort of the, um, that this individualized order of things is what we should expect or what we should aspire to, then, then prison education fits quite nicely into it. You write that Chris Hedges wants his students to grapple with the system, all the ways in which the state wears down the aspirations and opportunities of the oppressed. Is that wearing down of aspirations and op opportunities, is that purposeful? And I assume that you think it is, but if so, why is it done in your opinion? Why wear down aspirations and opportunities for those who are in prison? Mm. Well, huh. I would say that um, I'm not sure how 
how per I, I mean i do think it's purposeful but i'm not necessarily sure it's purposeful in the way that um you you know you and i as people might think about purpose i guess when i i started to um our prison system when i was when i was in college i i was often struck by this tendency among academics or advocates or policy experts to talk about quote unquote structural problems in a way that that at times could make it sound a bit you know conspiratorial like like there's some kind of active animus involved and i certainly think that racism and prejudice feed the outcomes of our legal system you know and and that they that the wider political order that we occupy produces um, outcomes that are highly racialized and that tend to reinforce you know white supremacy and social stratification and all of these you know features of of our modern life that are incredibly negative but but I think that we need to understand some of the most negative elements of our legal system as as the features that we are least inclined to to think about um, I don't talk about this at all in my essay but you might think of something like the public defender system for example which looks on its face like a really good thing right we have an adversarial justice system it makes a lot of sense that people who might not be economically enfranchised can uh, participate um, you know um, in it fairly by giving them access to lawyers um, in, in other words that, that the public defender system seems like something that we should be proud of that it represents you know a deep commitment to fairness and, and the rule of law um, but everyone today would point out that, that our public defense system is profoundly broken and in fact poor people today are more likely to be prosecuted and imprisoned than when Gideon versus Wayne before Gideon um, was decided and so you know without the modern public defender system, there's no chance that we would have this exceptional system of plea bargaining, which is all mediated by public defenders who are supposed to be this counterweight. And so I guess I bring up this kind of long-winded example for the purposes of, I think, trying to illustrate that many of the features of our legal system work because they are insidious because the way that they manage people or wear them down isn't done through necessarily overt antagonistic kind of um, methods although of course you can look at something like like police in america and they certainly fulfill that function but but police are not the only sort of feature of of what we would call you know a carceral state that i think we should be attentive to and we'll get to that idea that you uh, talk about social control in just a little bit. But you write uh, when it comes to uh, Hedges trying to uh, explain to the st students to grapple with the system. You write how this is reflected in Hedges' assignments, which includes titles like Amiri Baraka's Dutchman and Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. But unlike the universities he has previously taught at, like Princeton and Columbia, Hedges trusts his students will understand these matters intuitively. You then quote an interview with Hedges last year where he said, you begin discussions in prison classrooms at a level that these privileged white kids can't even begin to meet. Why are privileged university students unable to understand or comprehend the subject matter of works by Baraka and Alexander 
at a level that the incarcerated can? Or do you think that this is an assumption by Hedges that may be in some to some degree or not misguided? I'm inclined to say that that I think um, Hedges is is a little bit um, off base here, but I think that he's off base in a way that a lot of people working in prisons can be off base. Um, I think that when I started teaching, I assumed that the material that my students were going to be most interested in was going to deal with with their sort of experiences and their lives. And so it was my assumption, at least, that the books about race, about class, about capitalism, about the legal system were going to be what most excited them. And it turned out to be that um, while, I, while I was doing this work, that, that oftentimes um, a, a sizable percentage of the students were really interested in learning about things that had nothing to do with prisons. And so the program that I, I worked in taught chemistry courses and math courses and like courses on the sociology of like the business firm. And, and in a lot of ways, I think that that resonated as much with the students as with um, that those courses resonated as much as sort of the traditional offerings that I think Hedges is is um, bringing to bear. And so I, I feel like there's a tendency to assume that people who are in prison want to only be or want to be only experts or at worst are only capable of being experts in their own, subjugation. That is to say that, that all they can really offer us is really um, vivid portraits of how they have been wronged and the ways in which they continue to be wronged. And certainly um, people in prison have long, um, you know, articulated that and have written, you know, incredibly powerful testimony that, that addresses all of the ways in which our legal and social world has failed them. And this, you know, runs the gamut from, from George Jackson's letters and Soledad Brother, which I, I write briefly about, to, you know, Oscar Wilde's De Profundis. And so I, I don't necessarily want to say that, um, well, we shouldn't be teaching people in prison at all about, about capitalism or about race or about, um, you know, political economy writ large. But I also really believe that if that is the limit of what we're doing and that if all these programs are sort of producing is that kind of knowledge, then in some ways we are not dealing with these people as sort of students because, you know, if you're a university student, it's not assumed that you are only going to be interested in one subject or one set of subjects. And and so I think that really trying to, to deliver that, that breadth is vital. And in some ways, I, I think um, Hedges may fall short by being so focused on just wanting to talk about the system. So what Hedges does is he asks his class to write essays. They write a whole bunch of different essays, and he decides, let's compile all of these and kind of bring them together into a play called Caged. 
And he says that this whole opportunity gives him the opportunity to ask a whole bunch of questions that he hadn't asked in the past. And you offer uh, one of the questions Hedges gets to ask his students while they're writing a play about being in prison and what got them there. Hedges asks, is the primary task of state institutions, especially the police, the courts, the jails, and the prisons justice, or is it the social control of those cast aside? In your opinion, is the law about social control? And therefore, so is the police, the courts, the jails, the prisons, and our entire system of justice. And would that be something that prisoners would learn from somebody like Chris Hedges? Yeah, um, I think that... It was my experience that most people, as Edges himself points out, who have been through um, the criminal punishment system um, understand this somewhat intuitively. Um, you know, in a city like Chicago, for example, which is where I'm based, it's rather hard to take seriously the idea that our legal system produces you know just outcomes when you think about people people like john birch or even for that matter the the whole institution of plea bargaining which is done completely in private it has virtually no markers of accountability and it nullifies the opportunity for people to pursue kind of what we would call post-conviction remedies. In, in other words, the sort of self-correcting, quote-unquote self-correcting elements of the legal system don't really exist in a robust way anymore. And to what degree they existed you know, before um, is kind of dubious as well. But I, I suppose that the larger point is, yes, I think that um, these institutions are more interested in in producing social control than in producing um, justice. I mean, prisons are for poor people, for disabled people, for marginalized people, um, and it's not an accident that you know penitentiaries aren't full of people who um, you know work on yachts, you know, even though we all know that drug use on yachts and drug use in, you know, public housing is not in any way different from one another. There's just a whole bunch more police and sort of surveillance infrastructure set up to, to harass and imprison those kind of people rather than, you know, bankers and lawyers who are spending their summers on large boats. So, uh, Daniel, uh, back in June, I love that. That was really great. Back in June 2020, we spoke with sociologist Sarah Beth Kaufman, author of American Roulette, The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sentencing Trials. We discussed how the death penalty breeds a society driven by vengeance. So I asked her if the death penalty reflects a justice system driven by vengeance over all else. Sarah Beth cites influential uh, death penalty scholar Austin Surratt, who said that state killings should provoke the question, not what it does for American society, but what it does to American society. Among other things, Surratt argued the U.S. capital punishment system legitimates vengeance, intensifies racial divisions, and distracts Americans from the hard work of solving complex problems by offering seemingly simple uh, solutions. So to what degree do you think justice in the United States is not only driven by a desire for social control, but a desire for vengeance, punishment, and retribution? Yeah, I think that 
certainly there is a, a real current of, of vengeance and a real vindictiveness to um, modern American life. And, and I, I want to suggest that this kind of vengefulness is not just articulated in our punishment system, but it's it's really something that has seeped into our culture in profound ways, I think particularly in the aftermath of, of 9-11. We've just really, I think, become to the degree, to, to perhaps a new degree, um, a country that is just profoundly anxious and, and profoundly, and because of that profound anxiety, I think that there is perhaps like a, a sense that, that all errors or all kind of imbalances and inefficiencies need to be kind of dealt with ruthlessly. Um, and so, I mean, th there are many ways that you could point to this this vengefulness kind of explicitly, but but I also think there are more subtle mechanics here, or more subtle elements that we should be attentive to. Um, just to kind of pick cherry pick one example, think about the fact that that our mourner in chief, you know, Joe Biden, the man who is like supposed to understand grief and grace better than like any person to occupy the Oval Office in a long, long time, has a stack of something like 11,000 clemency applications waiting for his signature, and that he's yet to send a single person home that way. Um, so it's not just that we are incredibly vindictive but that we are also basically um, that our legal and political culture makes no room for people to grow from their mistakes or for us to be able to acknowledge that wrong or harm has been inflicted and that that is something that we can move past or move beyond and kind of collectively solve. It's sort of the case that now I think we often just sort of treat people as being inherently that, that basically their their wrongdoing um, is a mark on their personhood. This sort of grace that we afford people today is quite limited. And so it's not just the fact that we're vengeful <laughs> that matters. It's the fact that we're vengeful to a point where we permit no opportunity for, for growth to happen. And so the death penalty is obviously a really good example of that. But I think it's also worth keeping in mind that there are as many people serving, you know, effectively life sentences today who we've condemned to die in prison um, than there were people in prison, you know, the year of the Attica uprising. And so it, this sort of permanent punishment is become really a deep feature of our legal regime in a way that goes kind of well beyond capital punishment. It's almost as if any sentence in prison is a life sentence, correct? Well, you know, I think that um, it certainly can be a life sentence, especially in light of 
the pandemic where, you know, thousands and thousands of people have been um, or were condemned basically to die um, by state officials um, who and prison officials who refused to um, release people in large enough numbers to permit social distancing, who refused to this day to give people in prison access to adequate medical treatment. Um, and certainly, if, if prisons don't produce life sentences per se, you know, they absolutely produce death, whether that death comes while a person is incarcerated or after they're incarcerated. There's a lot of um, research that's been done over the last couple of years that have sort of, um, I think, quite compellingly demonstrated how pretty much any time spent in prison reduces um, the life expectancy of those who are incarcerated. And so it really is the case that even if the raw numbers of people who are dying in prison are not necessarily in the tens of thousands or in the hundreds of thousands, that they nevertheless are really diminishing people's lives um, in sort of both the immediate term and in the longer term. We are speaking with Daniel Fernandez, who wrote the Baffler Magazine article, The Classroom in the Cell, Who Benefits from Prison Education. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at DanielAaron1007. When it comes to Hedges' lessons on social control and the impact of capitalism on the prisoners' lives, you write that it's difficult to see these as prompts for serious reflection. Rather, they read as rhetorical fodder, invitations for us to share in Hedges' vast indignation with the carceral system. In your opinion, who is the intended audience and why doesn't this kind of vast indignation lead to further reflection? Why doesn't vast indignation necessarily lead to action? Well, I think that indignation uh, has its place. Um, but I think that that indignation has to produce some kind of action. And I think that, for me at least, um, it's often the case that reading horrible things about prison uh, can become, at a certain point, you know, demobilizing, because the system is so cruel and so indifferent to suffering that it feels, uh, can feel kind of at times almost impossible to to do anything practical about it. And so I think in that way, you know, just sort of reiterating pain can, can sometimes stifle, at least for me, um, more generative or more meaningful kind of um, action. But, but I also think, as I point out in the essay, that representing pain doesn't necessarily get us any closer to understanding it. Um, and, and acknowledging that people are in pain doesn't sort of inexorably lead us to, to join in, in struggle or in solidarity with them. It can, um, but it's not a, a guarantee. And so I think that um, at times, I feel like Hedges is trying to convince the reader that he is a, a good person for uh, 
what he's doing and that he's doing something righteous. And I guess my only sort of rebuttal or thought is why, if it is indeed righteous or it is indeed good, um, why he feels like he has to expend um, really ener any energy at all in convincing um, us that that's the case. Like, if it's truly that self-evidently good, then then why? bother with kind of playing up all of the, the diatribe. And, and I, again, I think perhaps um, one way of reading that is that, in fact, um, at some level, he understands that this is not, you know, a wholly good thing, that present education is not, you know, necessarily emancipatory, that it's not inherently beneficial. And so he sort of ties himself in knots, basically, because he's trying to convince himself that what he's he's doing is, is wholly good. And, and I think that that was very much um, an experience that I had while I was teaching. And so I don't I don't mean to, um, you know, kind of castigate, but more to kind of point out that I think that what that sort of anxiety um, is one that, that anyone who teaches in prison long enough comes to appreciate or, or understand or feel in some way. You're right that while there's no ignoring Hedge's talent for documenting deprivation, you write how you were often left wondering whether he really thinks a better world can emerge from exhuming all this pain. After all, even those students who managed to depart prison as changed men return to what Hedges calls the social hell of urban America. They sleep in homeless shelters full of pests and struggle to find work. One former student who gets a job at Whole Foods is fired when his manager finds out about his criminal record. We are educated, he tells Hedges, Hedges just enough to occupy the lowest rung of the social ladder. Do you get the feeling that the whole project then is futile, if not self-defeating? And if so, is Hedges correct? Due to the prejudices against those who have left prison, are attempts at improving yourself that should become stepping stones of progress futile? I don't think that they are wholly futile. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the case, um, both kind of for the reasons that I, I laid out earlier about why I think this work can be valuable to people who are in prison, but, uh, you know, it's also the case that not everyone who um, leaves prison in these programs fails again or, or is caught up in, you know, cycles of poverty and violence, you know, um, you know, even if it's the case that that more than half of people who are in prison today, if you know when they're released, will end up back in prison within a matter of years, um, the other half won't. And so I don't necessarily want to play totally to this this hopelessness um, or the ineffectualness because it does really help people. I think the question for us to ask is is how many people it helps and how much work it can do to move us toward a truly um, just society. And I, I think from that vantage, um, the work that it can do is, is somewhat limited. And, and to just sort of um, elaborate on this maybe a little bit more. Um, I think this is part of the reason why when when 
prison abolitionists talk about wanting to change everything, that, that what they're really after is not um, merely removing prisons as an institution or jails as an institution or deportation facilities as institutions, but about transforming the, the social contours of our world. Uh, basically, uh, what it would mean to create or imagine a world where we do not need prisons. Um, and, and so I don't necessarily think that prison education moves us in that direction because what it is really producing are, you know, a very small number of graduates of these programs who have credentials that look impressive and legible to people who are in power. And so while they are being successful, their success um, comes in some ways at the expense of, of maintaining the system that we have today. Um, and so, you know, I think when I don't mention this in the essay, but when I think back on, on the work that I was doing in prison, I think part of what I'm really struck by or disturbed by is um, how many um, how many people I had to walk by, um, you know, in order to get to. Um, the classroom, you know, if you if you go through like a lockup, you know, you you walk by all these people in in neat single file lines going to the chow hall, or you know the people who are running around on the track, and then of course there are all of these people who you don't see who have to spend you know twenty three hours a day um, in a cage, and and so again it's the case that while these programs do something very valuable for those who are lucky enough to find themselves enrolled in them, that they also leave behind, uh, you know, a large majority of, you know, incarcerated people. And, and I don't want the success of this really small group of people to totally divert, you know, our attention from, from those who are not fortunate enough for various reasons to participate. Which leads me perfectly into the next question. You mentioned uh, accounts of prison educators who speak about the programs as partnerships between universities and departments of correction. These are not equal re relationships among peers, but more polite exercises in subordination. Every person who teaches in prison long enough comes to appreciate these dynamics. And the more routine the visits become, the harder it is to avoid thinking, what difference am I making here? Did you feel that way when you taught in prison, that you were part of a system of subordination and does that system of subordination whether it's you or hedges does that eventually affect the way that you not only interact but the relationship that you have with uh, prisoners and the way that you teach prisoners i think that um those thoughts are are perhaps bound to creep in um i also would say at the same time that while <laughs> because the sorry um i guess i would say that because the immensity of injustice in our prisons today can make it feel that that nothing really can be done to remedy the problem that that um things are just so bad that you know there's 
only that we're only kind of chipping away at the edges of things. Um, and in the case of prison education, I tend to think that is true. On the other hand, though, um, the men who I worked with and, and who many of whom I still correspond with, um, their lives were better because of this program. Um, and, and I think continue to be better because of the program, because of the relationships that they're able to form with teachers or with other student instructors. Um, and so I don't want to discount that. I think really my intent was to try and get us to think more about kind of where we go from here and what 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 we can do basically beyond prison education rather than education being sort of the horizon for um, potential reforms to the system i think in some ways it should encourage us to think more deeply about how much more work remains to be done you write that journalists politicians and penal administration administrators all tend to glide over prison education's history of repression and social engineering. And though it's well known how the individual has become our most important unit of political analysis, it's worth noting the role this plays in mass incarceration. Rather than transform how the disfavored are treated, our legal institutions have focused on devising reforms that allow an infinitesimal elect to become favorable according to terms set by their subjugators. So earlier this week, we were speaking with sociologist Elijah Anderson, author of Black and White Space, The Enduring Impact of Color in Everyday Life. Elijah writes about black lives existing in white-dominated spaces, and in order to exist in those spaces, black people must perform respectability, which when I asked Elijah, uh, he said was performing whiteness. When you write, legal institutions have focused on devising uh, reforms that allow an infinitesimal uh, elect to become favorable, according to terms set by their subjugators. Is this the kind of performative respectability that Elijah was mentioning, the perf performative whiteness, if you will? Is that what is being taught through these education systems? I certainly think that's part of what's being taught, yes. I, I conclude the essay with this, um, so hopefully I'm not preempting another question of yours. No, go ahead. But um, it, it, for me, at least, um, I think it's the case that, that when I'm thinking about what justice looks like, um, that justice really can't be measured, or that our commitment to justice can't be measured, at least, by how we treat people whom we respect, uh, by people whom we admire, that, that our commitment to justice has to be measured by how we treat the disfavored, the disabled, the disenfranchised. And I don't think that prison education pushes us collectively in a direction where we are doing that work, because what it's producing are credentials and repertoires of, of knowledge and ability that tend to reinforce the kind of social world that we live in. Um, in other words, it is, it is sort of about making people appear worthy enough to be released from prison or worthy enough to have a job once they leave. And, and I don't think 
I think what we should really be asking is why we believe it's the case that some people are sort of automatically or inherently not worthy, you know, of a decent life or a decent job. Um, and that really has to be at the center of, of our thinking and our, our action. One last question for you, Daniel. We've been speaking with Daniel Fernandez, who wrote the Baffler magazine article, The Classroom and the Cell, Who Benefits from Prison Education. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at DanielAaron1007. At one point, and correct me if if I'm, I'm not remembering correctly, but at one point you say that the one thing that you could not give to the uh, prisoners who you were teaching was the thing that they wanted most, and that is freedom. In an education setting, how can you teach freedom? Mm. And by the way, I should have said this before this question. Every uh, time we finish an interview with our guests, we always finish with something called the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And that's Uh this week's question from hell for you. How can you teach freedom? Well, I think that freedom is as much a practice as it is a, a thing that we kind of hold on to. That, that in other words, um, we learn what freedom means by, by doing the sorts of things that, that free people do. Um, and in some ways, um, education really can be um, a way toward at least some some kind of freedom. Um, you know, I can't speak to the experiences of someone in prison, um, and I I can't tell you exactly kind of what education has or, or has not meant to them because that's not within my skill set. But my impression, you know based on the conversations that I've had with people, is is that being in the classroom um, is an opportunity for for self-growth and self-reflection that is rarely afforded to people in prison. And, you know, I think it's the case that that as educators, we want every student to be the best version of themselves, right? And and we understand that everyone is going to enter into any sort of um, educational setting with different abilities or different skills. And the way that to evaluate sort of them is by their growth, not by necessarily um, some cut and dry sort of measure. And so I think to the degree that prison education allows um, individuals behind bars to continue to, to grow and find meaning and perhaps even occasionally joy, um, then, then it is producing freedom of some kind. I think a very imperfect freedom, but but I don't want to, to lose sight of the fact that every person who is in prison has to live with that in every moment of every day. And so to the degree that these programs offer some amount of reprieve, I think that that is really valuable. I just 
don't want it to sort of be the end point of what our movement toward freedom or emancipation looks like. Daniel, thank you so much for being on our show. I was looking at some of your past writing, and it's all really great. People can check out all of your writing over at The Baffler right now by just uh, you know checking out this article and clicking on your name, and it takes you to all of your other past articles. We would love to have you back on the show, and so count on us bugging you in the future. You did absolutely fantastic in this interview, so I really appreciate your attention and, and your, uh, you know, your insight to these and your perspectives to this situation. So I really appreciate it, and I hope you'll return to our show. Well, thank you so much. Um, It's been a pleasure, Chuck. All right. Take care, Daniel. All right. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. And the reason I got distracted there during the question from hell at the end is because at some point during today's show, I knocked over my water container, and I realized that there was a large puddle of water underneath my chair. And then I realized there's a lot of electronic equipment in the room that I am in. And then I thought, well, at least I have rubber-soled shoes on, and I still wasn't too sure if I was going to be (laughs) electrocuted and dead by the time the show was over. If that conversation with Daniel on education in prison was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by donating to our home station, WNUR. 89.3 89.3 FM, Chicago Sound Experiment at WNUR.org slash donate. Phonathon ensures that our station, along with its 400-plus students and staff, can continue to be a voice and guiding light for underrepresented tastes and to be a place where generations of Northwestern students can form friendships lasting a lifetime. Last year, thanks to all of... Our generous donors, we were able to revamp our website, WNUR.org, conduct much-needed repairs to our equipment, and sponsor WNUR's first-ever music festival, Transference Fest. Without dedicated support from our community of listeners, we would not be able to provide the diverse, delightful programming that we all love. This year, your support matters more than ever. If you go to WNUR.org right now, you can donate at many different levels. Donate at the contributor level level of $10 and get a WNUR sticker. For $25, you can contribute at the donor level and get a WNUR t-shirt and sticker. You can donate at the silver level of $50 and receive a WNUR tote bag t-shirt and sticker. Then there's the gold level of $70, which gets you a hand gets you hand-picked limited edition vinyl records. Uh, WNUR beanie, the tote bag, plus the t-shirt and NNUR sticker. There's also the diamond level of $125, which gets you all of that, plus the WNUR hoodie. And finally, there's the platinum level, and with a donation of $250, you get hand-picked limited edition vinyl records, the WNUR hoodie, tote bag, beanie, t-shirt, and sticker, plus limited edition WNUR socks. Support completely commercial-free independent college radio now by visiting WNUR.org slash donate. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is still, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? What are you buying the cheapest version of these days? And on Facebook, Wojciech R says, government cheese. Garrett S. says, love. Ah. Dan K. says, damned souls. <laughs> Jeez. John T. says, smoked Bentleys. No. I, right. I, honestly, I don't know what, what that means. Yeah, I don't either. Um, Chris H. says, heroin. 
That's a bad, I, big I, mistake. I don't know. Like, these, like these days, buying the cheapest version of heroin just means that you buy a bunch of fentanyl and then just die. die. Which is not really Not funny. a good idea, no. no. Uh, David I says, thrills. The cheapest thrills. <laughs> now that's good. Kelly Hirai says, beans. <laughs> um, Clarence S. Oh, I'm sorry. I just read out the full name. Ah, my bad. Uh, Clarence S. says, a Hulu subscription. <laughs> Sloan T.L. says, salvation. Um, Fa uh, Fabio A.J.L. says, JPEGs of monkeys. Zero cents if you right-click. Cheap. <laughs> right. Josh, F uh, Josh F. says, can't go wrong with sex toys from Wish. Right? <laughs> God. That's a that's a great way to just get yeah. your junk electrocuted. Yeah, I, guess. I think so too. Uh, Thomas K says, "Flies for the ointment and sand for the gears." Yikes. Kim G says, "Myself." Yeah, well, there you go. Cheapest version of herself. Mm -hmm. Neil C says, "Underwear won't have to worry about wedgies." All right. And lastly, Paco C says, "Ganja." No, don't get the cheapest version. Yeah. That's a big mistake, especially now that it's recreational. Prices have kind of dropped in different places. It depends on... We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. By the way, you too can email us, message us via Facebook, or tweet at us on Twitter with your guests and topic suggestions, or tell us anything you'd like to share with us here on the show, and we'll likely read it on air. We got an email from Brianna who has a guest suggestion. Brianna writes, Hi, Chuck. I've been listening for a couple of years now and can't say enough about how good the show is. I learn so much and feel a genuine sense of hope hearing from such incredibly intelligent and articulate people fighting the good fight. I've been meaning to write in just to say thanks, but I thought you might be interested in chatting with L. Hardy. She's currently promoting her book, Beyond Belief, which examines Pentecostal Christianity. As an Australian... Apparently, Brianna's Australian. This topic is very near to my heart because our appalling government is led by a Pentecostal, which has led to even less of a pretense at secularism than usual. But the rise of this dangerous sect is a very disturbing trend worldwide, and I know Elle is very interested in talking about topics other than SCOMO, that's Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, such as what's been happening in Brazil, Nigeria, and the U.S., I'll drop a link to a recent interview with Elle to give you a teaser of some of the content in store. I'm off to order her book right now myself. Thanks to you and all the This Is Hell team for the work you do. Keep it coming. Cheers. Oh, Brenna. It's, the last name is Brenna, not Brianna. My mistake, Brenna. So the book, again, is Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World by L. Hardy, which is described by Hearst Publishers as a fascinating expose of the global revolution you've never heard of, a deep-pocketed, tech-savvy Christian movement reshaping our societies from within by turns troubling and entertaining. Beyond Belief exposes the Pentecostal agenda, not just saving souls, but transforming societies and controlling politics. These modern prophets embedded in our institutions have the cash and the influence to wage their holy war. So that all sounds really fascinating, Brenna, but let's get back to your genuine sense of hope you get from listening to This Is Hell. Please, can I have some? Because I think it's giving this show and all this supposed hope is giving me ulcers and I'd much rather have genuine hope. 
We'll have more of your feedback on tomorrow's show. We'll also have uh, more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Sebastian, do you know who is coming up later on this week's show? Uh, what do you know? I actually do know. Holy cow. Who would have known? Um, tomorrow, uh, it's Oz Keys on their article, Condition Critical, for Real Life Magazine. And then we also have Jeff Dorchin with The Moment of Truth, where Jeff flags your non-Jewish heritage. <laughs> there you go. Don't forget to show your support for our home station, Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, by going to WNUR.org slash donate. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Voper for producing today's show. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.